This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov slash MCTV. Local productions seen on Delta College Public Media are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. Welcome to today's episode of Junior Doan's The Spark. I'm Junior Doan and thank you for joining me. Today my guest is my in-law cousin Bonnie Matheson. Bonnie is the author of a book titled Ahead of the Curve, An Intimate Conversation with Women in the Second Half of Their Life, and the creator of a blog where she writes about everything from women's issues to politics, grandchildren, fox hunting, parties, and having fun. She is currently completing her memoir, Acquiring Wisdom. Welcome, Bonnie. So tell us about your book, Ahead of the Curve. Now <laughs> almost nice. 15 years old. It is an old book, but the, but the wisdom in it is clear. Um, and nothing has changed about that part of life. It's, um, it's, it's meant to inspire women, so many women, reach around the age of 50 and they think their life is over. It's, oh, that must really be old by now. And to me, that's just the beginning. I just, and uh, I, I kept telling women stories about that and stories about things I'd done in my life. And other women kept saying, you should write, did you write a book? You should write a book about this. So finally I did it. And um, really I did it because a friend of mine sent me an outline after a conversation on the phone of what I should use to start my book, and I used it, and <laughs> I did. Anyway, but now I'm 81, you know, <laughs> long past 50, uh, and but I'm still doing new things, pushing myself. This last weekend, I went riding for the first time in 20 years, 19 and a half years, um, and it just gave me huge confidence. And um, so I, I advise other women to do that sort of thing, and. And it might not be writing, but whatever, you know, do whatever. People are so afraid to do something new. So tell us a little bit about how you were raised, because your mother uh, lost her, her mother very early in life due to the uh, 1918 flu. So was you, what kind of a mother was she? How, how did you, what, what world did you grow up in? Well, you know, because she, my mother didn't have a mother, so I don't think she knew much about being a mother. And so she was my best friend. I mean, she was my best friend forever. Um, and 
she was a good mother, but not not very traditional. And um, she um, she was permissive in some ways, permissive, in that she trusted us, all of us. She trusted us, and um, but I mean, we had very very real rules, and uh, but there just weren't very many of them because she said she didn't have any rules <laughs> growing up and she had to navigate her teenage years pretty much unsupervised. Her grandmother raised her, but by the time her grandmother was, by the time she was a teenager, her grandmother was incapacitated. So mother did her own shopping from the time she was 12 to buy her clothes for school and, you know, and uh, so she, I think in that way, we had a, a very, um, I think it was good for me and my sister, uh, especially the two girls. I, my brother got a sort of different view of my mother, but um, we were allowed to be ourselves. I think that was important. That's unusual for the time, isn't it? Well, I mean, as I said, there were some real rules. I mean, um, like not to be too flirtatious or not to be, uh, when I got to be an early teenager, you know, I was told that I had to be very careful. I should never kiss a boy without, I mean, it could ruin my reputation. So that kind of stopped me for a while. I mean, but she didn't really mean it. She, she said, I just wanted to, uh, you know, try to, try to delay the inevitable um, young womanhood which of course was happening. And I was an early, I grew up early. I was early mature. And I, because my parents were during my early teens, my father was an ambassador in my late teens, he was chief of protocol. I got to do all sorts of diplomatic things that most teenagers would never get to do. So that, that kind of, I kind of got it out of my system too. I mean, I just yes. don't care about it anymore. Who raised you, though? Your parents must have been very, very busy. Oh, yeah, they were busy, and we did have a nurse. We called her a nurse, not a nanny, um, but who I disliked mostly. Uh, and she disliked me because I she didn't come till after my sister was born, so I was always felt I was my parents' child. But, I mean, I was pretty independent, and I, I rode. I always rode horses. And, you know, in those days, we could just ride out. Once once I got my horse away from my house and was boarding it in a boarding stable, we used to, we rode in a ring during the week and so when we didn't have so much time after school. But on weekends, we would just go off and we had no hard hats, no cell phones, nobody knew where the heck we were and nobody died. And I survived. So, I mean, I, it gave me a lot of confidence. I. I had a lot of confidence, but I also was very insecure about, you know, as all teenagers are, um, about I was insecure because I had pimples and I had this hair, which I just wrote a blog post about. Um, my mother, from the time I was four, had took me to Elizabeth Arden to get permanence. So I thought there was something wrong with my hair. And there isn't. I actually have great hair. But I didn't find that out till I finally got rid of the permanence after I got married. You say you were so attracted to horses and liked them so much that they, they took you to freedom. What did you yeah. learn about horses? Or what did they teach you? They're sensitive animals. Well, you know, sense of a sense of responsibility. And um, and I was in love with my peanut, with my 
my pony was a 14-2. That means he was just borderline horse size. And his name was Peanut Butter. And I was in love with that horse. And that, so, um, that, that was really interesting. But what really gave me freedom wasn't the horse. The freedom, real freedom came when I got my driver's license. Oh, then I was really out and about. And, and I sort of gave up the horses when I got to be 16. I didn't ride very much until after my first three children were born. Then I started riding again. But I've always had a lot of interest. I've never been a real horse girl, you know. I mean, I loved horses. I'd spend hours with them and so forth. But I also, I was a reader. I'm a reader. I mean, that's, books are my, that was my escape. And that was how I learned everything was from reading. And when we lived in Luxembourg, there weren't, you know, I didn't go to school. I had a tutor and there was no real library for me to go to. So I just read everything in the embassy. And a lot of it was adult books. Um, and uh, so I, that was where I got my real love of reading, I think. Your book, you talk about each of us has to face our demons or at least understand them. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, first of all, you have to understand them. I mean, a lot of people don't know they have a demon. You know, they don't know what, what's causing the problem. Um, I think, I mean, I really believe in being introspective, but I don't think everybody is. I mean, my mother used to say to me, why, you know, why do you have to analyze everything? She said, why can't you just enjoy life? Um, and, but I can't. I can't just enjoy life. I mean, I do enjoy life, but but I, to me, it's no fun if you can't do a little analytical research of yourself or somebody else. So anyway, I think a lot of people are unhappy about one thing or another, and they won't admit what it is. It's too horrifying. They're too scared. It's that they don't like being a mother, or they they don't like their job, or they don't like their husband, or they don't like something about themselves. But it's too scary to admit that, so they, so they do something else. They 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 hide the real truth from themselves. And I, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. Or though I do have a degree in psychology, which I got after I went back to school to get my degree at, at 50 because, and it took me six years, so I was 56 when I got it. Um, and uh, but I mean, I just think. I think people have so much power. Our brains are so powerful, are, but we don't know it. And a lot of people just live their lives without ever understanding their own power, their own importance, their own ability to, to direct their lives and, and, and their health. So. How did you discover it? Or did you always know it? I mean, when I was young, I was really unhappy in Luxembourg. I wanted to be with my horse, Peanut Butter, who was back in the United States. I wanted to be in my home. but And I sometimes was very unhappy, but I, I felt like I had this little coal. That's where I first discovered it. I had like a little burning coal of energy inside me. And so even if I was feeling really bad and depressed or unhappy with my parents, you know, typical teenager. I was 13. My mother said, all 13 year olds are miserable. You might as well be miserable here in Europe, in this embassy. Um, and anyway, but it was around that time that I discovered that I had this, this 
I don't know what it is. And I still have it. That's the thing. But I believe probably everybody has it. They just have to find it. Um, it's a little inner core of, you know, I can pull myself back up, whatever unhappy, bad thing happened. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to start over. And starting over, at one point, doing something different. In in your book, you talk, you believe in reincarnation. I did. How did you come to that uh, understanding? I don't know. I think, I mean, the main reason I think I started to think about it was because I grew up in a very, very privileged family. My parents loved each other. I didn't realize then that that's unusual. I, I just thought every parent, I thought all mommies and daddies loved each other like mine did. I, my parents loved us. Um, and we had many material things and dogs and I had my pony. And Anyway, then we lived in Europe and it was not that long after the Second World War. And in that embassy were books with photographs of the uh, victim from the concentration camps that they didn't sort of make their way to the United States till way later. I saw those books again in the United States in like the 60s or 70s, but I saw them in 1953 in that embassy, black and white photographs, bodies piled, you know, just a horrible thing. And I could, and I read the diary of Anne Frank and I thought, how could I be so lucky, you know? And I knew that I didn't do anything to make myself so lucky. It was just a, an accident of birth. And so I thought, well, maybe um, this is my reward for some horrible thing that happened to me in a previous life. It, it was my way of, of rationalizing my luck and my good fortune and my cushy lifestyle with so many people that aren't so cushy. Periodically, people say that someone who has died comes back and gives them a sign or a phrase or an indication. Have you had that experience? Not at all, no. And my only, when my mother died, I was with her and I was thinking that maybe I would see something to see her soul leave her body or some some sign. I didn't even know that she had stopped breathing. I mean, I barely knew it. She sort of went, and then no other breath. But before that, that, during that night, three different times, she raised her arms up like as if she was going to greet some, she was lying flat in her bed, but she was as if she was greeting someone three times, maybe four times she did that in the night and she was very weak. So I, I couldn't, I had no sense of any other person being there. And yet I felt she sees somebody and she is happy. She's greeting somebody. So I, I don't, I don't, I can't prove it, but that's what I think. I, when you were raising your five children, um, what values did you try and teach them? Uh, of course, there were different that, times. Uh, well, but I grew up terrified of making a mistake. I was, my mother was very demanding. She was sweet and everything, but she was in her own way, very, very controlling without, I don't know how to explain it even, I, but I grew up just, I didn't want to make a mistake. I didn't want to make anybody mad. I wanted to be a good girl. Um, and I was terrified. I mean, I really did. I was scared of um, embarrassing myself. You know, it, it, I was just very self-conscious. And so when I raised my children, I I just, more than anything, I wanted them to, ra- to be raised with a feeling of 
that it was okay, okay to be themselves, okay to make a mistake, okay and to not grow up with that sense of foreboding if you if you put your foot wrong. And um, I did it. That The miracle is now they're all old. My children are in their 60s. <laughs> My son, Charlie, is 61. Helen's 60. Lilla's 58. And the other two are 49 and 50, uh, 48 and 50. And um, they all claim that they had the most marvelous growing up and they had no sense of this feeling of, foreboding of doing the wrong thing. So I did it. And and to me, that that's probably my biggest accomplishment. That those five children all feel they had a great childhood and they like each other. They all like each other, even though they have different political views. And um, that's my other achievement so far, knock wood. And they're, yeah. Did, uh, was that true of you and your siblings? No, I mean, well, what was we the were, relationship with them? Um, my sister and I, first is I'm the oldest. My sister's two years younger. My brother is two years younger than she is. And when we were small, we were kind of each one in our own little thing. I mean, Dee Dee and Bucky, my sister and brother went with the nurse and I went with my parents. And sometimes we would go in two cars someplace, like to drive to Florida or to drive somewhere. and. I would go in the car with my parents and my sister and brother would go with the nurse and a chauffeur. And um, so it was, and it was divided like that. Uh, we were never really close. And the worst thing that they did, and I know they didn't mean to cause as much harm as they did, I don't think, um, but they'd compared us to, to each other. And, and, and they would say to my sister, why can't you be more popular with the boys or why don't you want to go to the this dance or whatever like your sister me and they would say to me why don't you get better grades like your sister Dee because Dee Dee did her homework and she got good grades and I never did my homework which is once we got back in school I loved being tutored that part was great but when we lived in Luxembourg but when we came back to school I was ruined for life because of having been tutored in that embassy and going at my own speed I loved, I'm, I'm so curious. I want to learn everything. And when I went back to school, real school, they wouldn't let me jump ahead. You know, I wasn't supposed to read ahead in the book. I wasn't supposed to, I, I, it just, I didn't like it at all. Anyway, but so, but I got bad grades. So not horrible grades, not failing grades, but C's. And my Didi would get often B's and I don't know if she got A's because they, they didn't give many A's at Holton Arms in those days. It's not like today. Um, and, but anyway, so we were rivals rather than, um, best friends and my daughters who are just as different as my sister and I completely different from each other, different personalities, look different, everything, but they're best friends. And so I think that's wonderful. And I would that's like to be That's an achievement. Best. Yeah. Well, that's I, a wonderful it's their achievement, but, uh, um, achievement. yeah, you talked about, um, uh, not wanting to make a mistake and embarrass yourself in the family. Well, what has been the role of fear in your life? Is it a holds you back or is it a spur to go forward? Oh, no, I wouldn't say it spurred me to go forward. I think it held me back. Uh, but, but, but I was doing things like riding. You can be a little fearful, but you've got to keep going kind of thing. I think riding was the most 
amazing thing in my life. I mean, like later when I started fox hunting, as a young mother, I had three children. I was living in Washington, but I would drive to the country and go fox hunting. And um, you do horrifying things out there. I mean, jumping things that you would never jump if somebody said, go jump that wall followed by that river followed by whatever you'd say no no but when you're running you do it and you don't even think about it until you go back later and see where you went and said oh my goodness what did i do anyway so that gives i always used to say that people that fox hunted uh didn't need to go to a therapist and i think there's some truth in that <laughs> uh, i really do but, uh, so i mean i'm as fearful as the next person it depends on what it is you know i'm but i have also learned that you have to face that fear and do it anyway, because otherwise you'd just be sitting in your room alone, you know? Well, you mentioned uh, your new book, and I wonder if you could say a few words about that. Well, it's called Acquiring Wisdom, because I'm still acquiring it. <laughs> and, um, True. And the subtitle oh. is something like a, a journey over eight decades or something like that. Um, and... Uh, it's a series of little essays. It's a memoir. It's a memoir. And uh, starting with things about my, my parents, um, not so much their childhood, but just their, when they were engaged. And, um, oh, and no, that's not true. I also have something, because I have all my grandmother and grandfather's letters to each other before they got married in 1917. Um, so I have one little part in there about their their relationship and I mean I could write a lot more about that but it's hard to write it's hard to read those letters so I it takes a long time um and I write about my children and I write about my philosophy about life and and basically trying to inspire other people to go for it what is your philosophy of life? <laughs> That's it. Go for it. Uh, you know, face your fears and go forward. And, and I, you know, you asked me about what I tried to teach the children. I wanted them to be nice people. It was really important to me. I think more parents ought to focus on teaching their children to be nice. I mean, you, but and one way you do that is by example. You can't teach your children to be nice if you're not nice yourself. And my husband and I were married for 43 years and really basically good marriage that just kind of ran its course. My children experienced a happy um, parents that both loved each other and them and, and were, you know, I can't say it was always nice. I mean, there's some things that I, where I was rude to somebody intentionally or not that I regret, but you, you just can't, you know, you just have to move on. You make a mistake and move on. So, and and sometimes if I made a mistake, I would tell my children that I made a mistake, or if I punished them or accused them or whatever, um, I would apologize. And I I happen to know several of their friends have either at the time or later come to me and said, you know, I never, my parent never apologized to me for making a mistake. And it was so impressive to me that you would do that with your children. And so I don't know if that, I think that's a good thing. I, I have no way of knowing, but I'm pretty sure it's a good thing that parents should treat their children like people. The message is great and it's a needed, a needed message, but they said, 
at least one woman said, the trouble is the people are going to have to get past the fact that you have lived a very privileged life because it comes through in, it's a memoir. I'm, you know, I'm talking about my actual life, but also the lessons in my life. And um, so I hope, what I'm hoping is that I can, you know, finish this book, send it off, and that people will forgive me for the privileged life because I can't help that, but I still want to help people in, get inspired. Eileen Rockefeller told me, uh, she also wrote a memoir. Um, and I took away from that is <laughs> the privileged life sort of enhances some aspect of you, but you, therefore, you don't want to become subsumed by it, overwhelmed by it. And it's quite a job to find and establish yourself on your own so that you're not seen as the privileged life person. And uh, which comes back to that we're all human. Some have one kind of challenge, some have another kind of challenge. Um, but the point is to, to beat the challenges, right? And poverty is one, neglect is one, uh, lack of curiosity is one, ill health is one. Whatever it is, it's, it's unique to the person. And I find it kind of interesting, you know, but I, for the ones who are put off by it, they won't read it. But I bet you a lot of people will read it for just that point. So, so you see, I have an opinion of that. Uh, and you uh, can uh, take it in in any direction you want, Bonnie. Um, but I think it's important to know that you can have a lot of material things and still the challenges are there. Because right. often we talk, if you, if you have money or, you know, life is perfect. Well, it, yes, it's vastly improved in one area, but not necessarily in other areas. So bravo for you to taking it on and never be, sensitive about talking about it you know so well, good true. for you but you know the thing is because i did grow up that way i learned younger than most people that that having money and privilege is not what makes you happy so i've always known that and uh i um i'm very aware of the fact that um, you just can't you can't discount somebody's station whatever it is whatever whatever they all, everybody has problems. And um, of course, it's better if you have money enough to eat. But, um, but I've, I've, I've been up and down in the financial world also, but, but my overall life has been privileged. And so I am grateful. So take but, that as a plus in your life. Yeah. But I'm sorry to interrupt, but we are out of time. And I want to thank you for agreeing and having this conversation with me because uh, it will carry a light uh, for others on who you can be and what you can take on and what you learned from previous generations. So for anyone tuning on, remember, I always say be kind to someone you know and someone you don't know every day, today, going forward. They need it. You need it. Let's just make it a softer, more healing place. And see you next time. Thank you. To contact Junia, send her an email at juniadonesthespark 
at gmail.com. For more information, program schedules, and news about future guests, go to www.juniadonethespark.com. Thank you for joining us. See you next time on Junia Dones The Spark. Local productions seen on Delta College Public Media are made possible with support from viewers like you. Thank you. This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov MCTV. We hope you enjoy the following presentation.